Please open your Bibles to the 23rd chapter of Luke. Yes, I know it's been a while, but we shall return and we shall, God willing, conclude this chapter this morning. In the providence of God, we will be um, in this chapter 24, the study of the resurrection for most of the approach to Christmas. But this morning, before we get to that glorious reality, Luke tells us about the death and burial of Jesus. So please read with me Luke 23, verses 50 to 56. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Lord God, as we study this sober passage, the reality of the death of your son and how he was buried, Lord, let that reality sink into us, that you, you sent your son and he died for us. He did not stay dead, but he did die. Help us to see that with eyes of faith. Help us to learn from this. Help us to take hope. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as we look at these six verses, I hope that we'll see four four things, four snapshots in this text. Some that are in the text and some that are not in the text. Normally, that's a bad thing when a preacher wants to make a point from something that's not in the text. But I hope by the time we, we get to it, that'll make some sense. Four, four particular things, and I want to begin by sort of picking up where we left off. The last time we were in Luke together, Jesus died. We, we studied the death of the Son of God. If you pick up with me in verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, and then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And we studied how the the darkness at noon symbolized, signified, according to Old Testament prophecy, the Lord God showing up in final judgment. And we marveled at the reality that God showed up at the cross on this Friday in judgment and wrath, not at those Gentiles who had nailed Jesus to the cross, not at those Israelites who had demanded it, but the Father showed up in wrath at his own Son. And we studied the glorious reality of, of the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. And so I want to begin, point one, with a certain death. A certain death. I doubt this is an issue many of us in this room 
wrestle with, but over history, many have suggested, including Islam, the Islamic teaching on Jesus is that he was a prophet, but that he didn't die. And so I want to just pause for a moment, look at the certainty of Jesus' death. There's been many variations of this. Some suggest that a, a scapegoat was swapped in at the last moment. Others have suggested that Jesus did not die on the cross. He, he swooned. He fainted in the cool air of the tomb, reinvigorated him. There's been variations of that. And, and Luke, in his historic narrative, will not let any of that work you have, to, you have to disregard the testimony of the New Testament. Jesus' death is certain. We, we see that in verse 46. Having said this, he breathed his last. But we, we have even more evidence that is certain because we have a dead body in our passage this morning. We have a dead body that needs to be collected. We have Joseph collecting it, and we have a group of women following and seeing where it's laid. Jesus' death is, point A, confirmed. His death is confirmed by many witnesses. And even when Jesus rises from the grave, the Pharisees don't deny he died. They want to spread the rumor that somebody stole the body. So all of those in the first instance, all of those who were living at that time, no one suggested, put forward the ludicrous idea that Jesus had somehow survived the cross or avoided the cross. There was consensus among Jesus' friends and foes alike, he had died. The disagreement was what happened afterwards. And so I think it's helpful to note his death here is confirmed. The Romans were expert at executions and crucifixions, and they didn't generally let you down. His death is confirmed. Moreover, in Luke's gospel, his death was predicted. Point B, his death was predicted. And I've I've emphasized this. And again, this is not an error we are likely to struggle with in this room, but I'm sure you'll meet people. And it's again, it's very common in the more liberal threads of Christianity that the cross was a tragedy. It wasn't the main plan. Jesus came with a a message of social revival. He was woke, and he was spreading his message, and terribly, tragically, things went wrong, and he ended up on a cross. And that, again, simply will not stand the testimony of Scripture. As early as chapter 9, remember in chapter 9, he asked Peter, who am I? Because we've had that question echoing, Herod, who is this? Who is this? And Peter makes the good confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And in response to that, Jesus first clearly declares he will die. They're back to back. He strictly charged and commanded them, saying to tell no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day be raised. So Jesus has been emphatic on this point from Luke chapter 9. That's when he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He's going to die. Luke wants the reader to understand this is the plan. This is not a change to the plan. This is the plan. He came to die. It was predicted. And it was predicted in the Old Testament as well. We'll look in Isaiah 53 in just a minute. We'll see that. Jesus' death is confirmed. It's certain. It's historical fact. And and again, the the truth claims of Christianity engage history. There are other religions that can, can, to some sense, exist as a a series of thoughts or values 
They don't necessarily have any historical ties. I, I think in some sense, Hinduism or Buddhism could exist absent historical claims. There's no way Christianity can. His, Christianity's central tenet is Jesus Christ came, who he is, and what he did. And these are either historical realities or they're awful lies. And so Jesus' historical death on a cross is confirmed by witnesses. It was predicted by the Old Testament. It was predicted by himself. Again, in Luke 18, taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. So by review, Jesus is dead according to his own purpose and plan. According to the prophecies of scripture. According to the will of the Father. Which brings us to point C. Jesus' death was necessary. Jesus' death was necessary. Necessary, And this, again, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. It's worth slowing down, pausing this morning. If you understand anything, anything about Christianity, anything about the world, anything about reality, understand rightly the meaning of Jesus' death. Every other religion that I'm aware of on earth involves some level of merit system. You do something. You perform some rite you receive some ritual. You, you live a certain moral life. You, you do a pilgrimage to Mecca, whatever it might be. And on that basis of those good works, those rites, those experiences, you become acceptable to God. Christianity has it entirely upside down. Our standing before God is based upon the cross. If you have any hope, if I have any hope of standing before God, and not shrinking back in shame and terror because of our sinfulness. It is because Jesus on the cross took your and my punishment on our behalf. He received our punishment. We receive his righteousness. The great exchange, as C.S. Lewis called it. So turn, turn to Isaiah 53. We can see two of our points here at the same time. It's predicted and it was necessary. Um, understanding the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Penal, it's a penalty. The Father is punishing someone. Jesus is being punished by the Father as a substitute for us, not because of any wrong he did. Luke emphatically pointed out how many people again and again said he was innocent. He was innocent. Herod said he was innocent. Pilate said he was innocent. The centurion said he was innocent. Not for his own guilt, not for his own sin, but for ours. That is the basis by which we stand before God. So please, please get this. Isaiah 53. Let's pick it up in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. Whose griefs does the Messiah bear? Ours. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. And again, the, the worst suffering and terror of the cross was not anything the Romans could do. It was what was symbolized by the darkness at noonday. What was symbolized by the, 
veil of the temple being torn in two, the Father punishing him for our griefs and sorrows, stricken by God. He was pierced for our transgressions. Why was Jesus pierced? Because we have sinned and gone astray. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is the substitutionary notion of the cross. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There, there is the heart of the gospel. There is the heart of Christianity. And, and those who understand this rightly and trust in this are our brothers and sisters. Those who pervert this, who twist this, whatever else they may get right, they're, they're outside of the camp. This is the heart that God sent his son to live a sinless life, to die on a cross on our behalf, and because of his death, our sin is paid for, our punishment is absorbed. That's that last word, penal substitutionary atonement. Atonement is an old English word that simply means to make one, at one mint. Two parties between which there's hostility, mere made one. And through Jesus' death on the cross, according to Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith... We have peace with God. That's the cross. He was oppressed and he's afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he be cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. Even there, verse 9, we're going to see that prophecy in verse 9 fulfilled. He suffered a death of a criminal with other criminals. They, they killed him along with the wicked, but his grave will be with the rich. There is no deceit found in his mouth. Yet, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. So I, I plead with you, I beg with you, if you have any hope of saying before God, please do not put your hope and your trust in your good works, in your church attendance, in your helping out with Awana, in your Bible memory, in your baptism, in your taking the Lord's Supper, which we will do today. All these things are wonderful. This, this servant of the Lord who is crushed and pierced on our behalf. This is how we are made righteous. Just keep reading. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. There, there's the gospel. We are accounted righteous. We are, in fact, sinners. We still sin. But we are reckoned, credited, justified, to use the legal language that Paul enjoys. Righteous because of what he has done. And then after being declared innocent and righteous, we change and we grow. We're not pursuing Christ's likeness that we might be accepted, but because we've been accepted and forgiven, we pursue Christ's likeness. So it was predicted, it was confirmed, it was predicted it was necessary. If Jesus did not die on the cross, we would have no hope. The Apostle Paul says it plainly in 1 Corinthians 15. 
If Christ is not raised from the dead, we are of all men the most to be pitied. The reality of the death of Jesus and his subsequent resurrection is the linchpin and the heart of the gospel, and it cannot be emphasized enough, unless we make any mistake on this. So Luke has emphasized the certainty of his death. It was certain, it was predicted, it was according to plan, and it is absolutely essential and necessary for us. We have no hope apart from it. Back to Luke 23. And here's the point that's not in the text. But it's precisely what's not in the text that I want to draw your attention to as we look at a conspicuous absence. A conspicuous absence. Now, as we read the account of Jesus' burial, we're introduced to a new figure, Joseph of Arimathea. We're reacquainted with some old figures, the women who had followed Jesus from Galilee, first introduced in chapter 8. Who is missing? The apostles, where are they? Hadn't Peter confidently said, Lord, I will never deny you. I will follow you even to death. Where are these 12 men who our Lord chose, discipled, and instructed, and tried to prepare for this night? Where are they? They are absent from the story. And it's kind of conspicuous. It's conspicuous indeed. Where are they? Isn't it kind of shameful that... Others are tending to the needs of their Lord. Isn't it kind of shameful that they are not present? A conspicuous absence. And Jesus had predicted this. Turn back to chapter 22. Jesus had indeed warned them. They're sitting in the upper room. Jesus is delivering to them the first communion as he takes Passover and co-ops it and gives it new meaning. And he warns them about one of them betraying them. And they start trying to figure out who's going to betray them. And as they try to justify themselves, it twists into a conversation about who's the greatest. And that's the way the human heart can work. Jesus warns them, one of you is going to betray me. Can somehow turn into, I'm the greatest. That's what happens. And so he warns them. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, and that you is you all. He wants all of the 12. Satan has demanded that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. To which Peter responds, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. So he warns the 12, Satan wants to sift them, Satan's demanded them. He specifically warns Peter, and the disciples don't take the warning. Your first blank here is the reason they're gone is they have been sifted, all right. They have been sifted by Satan, just as our Lord predicted. Where are the 12? One of them has killed himself by now. Luke doesn't record that. Acts does. In Luke's sequel, we read Peter tells us what happened to Judas, that he hung himself and he fell wide open. It's kind of gross. So, so Judas has been sifted and perished. Peter has, in fact, denied Jesus. And the other 10 are scattered. They are scattered. 
through some combination of the intimidation and the fear of the military presence of Rome, through the, the populace turning on them, perhaps through their own shock and amazement at what Jesus was telling them as he tells them not to fight back. This is part of the plan. Permit this. They didn't understand. They didn't have categories in their head for a suffering Messiah. However it came together, this sifting was effective, and they scatter, and they do not stand with our Lord. They have been sifted by Satan, but we also saw they were self-confident and did not pray. This sifting, even though they've been sifted by Satan, Luke would have us see it's their own failing. See, however we're tempted, when we give in to temptation, it is our own fault. Even if Satan himself is the one tempting you. It's our own fault. Luke highlights that, doesn't he? When Jesus goes and Jesus survives this supreme trial and temptation, going to the cross, when he prays earnestly to the Father. And the Father strengthens him, right? So verse 42 of chapter 22, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. So Luke wants us to see why was it that Jesus was able to endure the cross? Why was it that Jesus was able to endure the wrath of his father, finish his course? Because he prayed, because he made time to prepare for the trial, and because his father strengthened him, Right? But Jesus has warned them once. He warns them a second time. Verse 40 of chapter 22 tells them, pray that you may not enter temptation. He tells them again in 46, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. They had the same opportunity for preparation that Jesus had, and they did not take advantage of it. They're a mixture of self-confidence and pride and sorrow. We noted that perhaps you're in my failure today was due to our lack of preparation in prayer yesterday. Luke wants us to see that the setup for why Jesus is resolute, unflinching, unyielding, faithful to the end, and why the disciples scatter is right there in chapter 22. So they're absent. They were self-confident, and they did not pray. I think some of the most difficult trials of our faith is when we don't understand. Um, I don't want you to think that somehow Joseph of Arimathea and these women understood Jesus was going to raise and, rise in three days. I don't think so. I think I would guess they were just as mystified and possibly disappointed as the disciples. But that's the contrast I want us to see in the text this morning. The difference between the disciples and their discouragement and their fear and their sorrow, Joseph of Arimathea and the women. They were weak in their faith but they will be strengthened, all but one of them. The son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. They are weak in their faith. Notice that Jesus, in praying for Peter, is praying for them as well. In chapter 22, verse 32, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus has prayed for Peter, who will in turn strengthen the remaining ten. But here's their failure of faith. It's weak. They, they shrink back. They don't understand. And I, and I get it. Jesus told them again and again he was going to die. They, they just didn't get it. They, they couldn't wrap their heads around that. And life can throw things at us today that we have a hard time wrapping our heads around. An unexpected illness, a death, loss of a job, and it just leaves us spinning. I didn't see this coming. Never in my wildest dreams did I think this is what God would do with my life. 
I've talked to people who said that. I've, I've just never imagined I'd be in this place, whatever this place is. Conflict in a family, dissolution of a marriage, looking for work, whatever it might be. We, we can get to places where we are stunned. We, we never considered this is what God might do. And we don't need to have answers. I don't, when someone comes talk to me, say to them, I know exactly what God's up to. Here's what he's doing. Well, I can look at that. I, I don't have the foggiest idea what God's doing. But I trust that what he's doing is good. We need to be faithful and trust him through this. The disciples shrink back, but we'll see point three here. After a conspicuous absence... A courageous faith. In stark contrast, the failure of the disciples and the apostles is Joseph of Arimathea. By the way, this is another hallmark of an authentic historic document. If the New Testament writers were, in fact, as some say, trying to set up a religion for power play, it's a bad idea to put your main living leaders in such a weak and pathetic light. I mean, if you're you're really trying to collect a power base. You want, this is what happens to, to all heroes and leaders. We write glowing stories about them. Like shortly after the founding of our country, you could read about George Washington skipping the silver dollar across the Potomac. We call them hagiographies because we dress them up to look better than they are because we want to exalt them, right? If, if you're trying to create a religion and the only people alive are these disciples, you'd want to tell great stories of their great power, not Peter denying Jesus, not the disciples scattering. This is the hallmark of an authentic and accurate historical record. And so we meet now courageous faith, courageous faith. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who was, had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked the body of Jesus, And he took it down and wrapped it in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. And as Luke introduces us to Joseph, and he he doesn't show up anywhere else except in this account in 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 the New Testament. He doesn't show up again in Acts. Although, again, Luke's attention to detail, telling where he's from, again, invites verification. Josephus, who Luke has written to, could now, with this information, look him up. He knows what town he comes from. He knows where he lived. And in the first century, he would potentially, conceivably, presumably, still be alive. Again, this isn't there was a man. No, his name's Joseph, from the town of Arimathea, his council member. So we get first point A, his identity. His identity. Who is this man? Well, Luke gives us a number of details. He's from a Jewish town. He's a Jewish man. He's a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, that combined group that met at the end of 22. Except unlike them, he is a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. He is a a, a holy remnant left over from the corrupt lump of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, Now what's odd here is that Luke says the council was in total unanimous agreement. Turn back to 22. Verse 66. Here's Jesus before the Sanhedrin, before the council. 
When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both scribes, chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. This is the council he's a member of. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, presumably them all, you say that I am. They said then, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from our own lips. So how can Luke say they all are in unanimous consent, and yet he had not consented? It's two possible explanations. I think the most likely is he wasn't invited. This is a sudden, on-the-moment meeting taking place in the middle of the night. And if they were aware that he was not on board with this, it would seem to make sense to me they wouldn't let him know. They'd just do it without him. That's entirely possible. It's what I tend to think happened. That If you're trying to do a lynching, and you know that one of your group is opposed to it, don't invite him to the secret council meeting that takes place at midnight. The other possibility is that Luke's speaking of them in such a corporate group that even though there is one dissenter, he can still say all of them. I, t- I tend to think the first is better. So even though Luke has shown us that this group with one voice condemns the Lord, yet among their midst there is this man. And Luke has, in his narrative, bookended the life and death of Jesus with such people. It's a very similar description. Turn back to chapter 2 of Luke. Um, This section that we're in right now, the end of chapter 23, really is a bookend to the first part of Jesus' life. The resurrection in chapter 24 is everything onward, but at Jesus' birth, we're introduced to someone using very similar language. Verse 24 of chapter 2. Oh, we'll go back to 22. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And I just compare that with Joseph from Arimathea, a member of the council, good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision in action, but was looking, waiting, same Greek word, for the kingdom of God. So the Lord has, even in the corrupt priesthood, a righteous priest in the temple who's waiting for the kingdom of God. And here at Jesus' death, amongst the Sanhedrin, is a good and just man, a righteous man, who is waiting, looking for the kingdom of God. Again, I don't think Joseph of Arimathea does what he does because he understands Jesus is going to rise. It's it's possible. But Luke's been pretty emphatic that nobody gets it yet. The disciples haven't got it yet. Even though Jesus said it plainly to them. So that means then that even in the face of the death of the one he'd put all his hopes in, the one whom he had looked to as God's Messiah, his Christ, even as that crashes to pieces before him, he hasn't given up hoping and looking for the kingdom of God, and he continues to act faithfully. And I think that's the challenge. The difference between the disciples and Joseph, the difference between the disciples and the women, is that when you're faced with things you don't understand, when you're faced with... 
God doing things that seem completely contrary to everything you'd expect and think. Joseph continues to trust him, look for his kingdom, and act faithfully. It's a simple thing he does. It's courageous, and yet it gets marked down in Scripture. He was a council member who had not consented to their decision. He was a good and righteous man looking for the kingdom of God. And so this good and righteous man looking for God's kingdom, even as he sees God's king killed, takes action. Point B, we move from his identity to his actions. And what he does is brave. Already it's brave that he has not consented to the council's decision. We know these, this council are bullies. And they're violent, wicked men. We've seen their corruption. They lie. They hire spies. They plot. They scheme. And people who get in their way, they have them gotten out of their way. In John's gospel, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, they decide to put Lazarus to to death as well because it's such a notable miracle, which really seems kind of unfair when you've just died and come back to life to find out people are trying to kill you. Um, That has to stink. But this is, a, this is, in other words, to oppose these people and to let them know that you oppose them is dangerous. It takes some courage. He's opposed them. He's not consented to their decision. And now he's going to publicly identify himself as some sort of follower, disciple of Jesus, because he's going to pay some level of honor and respect to the body of Jesus. And he goes to Pilate, and he asks for the body. And he wrapped it in linen and buried it in a new tomb. And I was doing my Bible reading with my family this week, and we were reading the Second Samuel. Um, and this type of theme is, is set up in Scripture for us. Remember, the, Saul was struck and wounded mortally. He, Saul, the, the first king of Israel, and he called upon his servant to run him through, and he was unable to. And Saul dies, and the Philistines are going to make sport of his body. And the men from Jabesh Gilead go and they find Saul's body and they bury it. And David learns of it. And in 2 Samuel 2, when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. The men of Jabesh Gilead showed steadfast love and faithfulness to Saul, even though he was a wicked king because he was the Lord's anointed. He was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one for his people in that time. And here, doing an equally loyal and steadfast, faithful act. Joseph from Arimathea dignifies the Lord's body, buries it in a tomb in which no one has laid. Which takes a moment to pause. In the Jewish burial system is a two-step process. We normally um, do some embalming, and then we have a funeral, and then we bury the body, and that's it. But in the Jewish system, as best as we can tell, there's a two-step process. First, you're put in a tomb, exposed to the air, And over the next year or so, your body decomposes. Then you come back at a later point. You collect the bones. You put them in a bone box called an ossuary. And then you bury that. 
That's the Jewish burial practice. It's likely that when one of the men that Jesus called to follow him said, first let me go bury my father, that's what he's referring to. And so Joseph from Arimathea collects our Lord's body. He was, he was killed with the scum of the earth. He was killed as a criminal. And yet just as Isaiah prophesied, he's buried with the rich. To own your own tomb, Joseph's got some money. And to have a new tomb, because you can imagine with this process, you could use them over and over again. You could bring a body in, give it a year or two, come back, clean it up, get ready for the next one. And Jesus is treated with honor here. It's almost as if after finally absorbing God's wrath, paying for our sin, after being brought that low, we now begin to see just the first steps of honor being given to him. And the true honor is going to come in the resurrection, his exaltation. But even here, he's buried in a tomb, a sign of wealth and dignity, and not just any tomb, a tomb nobody has been in. This is it's reminiscent of him riding a donkey on which no one has sat. And again, we're starting to see the exaltation of the Lord again. We're starting to see honor and privilege. He deserves a tomb that no one else has used. So Joseph does this thing. He has the means to do it. He's just being faithful. The king is dead. Long live the king. He, the king, our Lord's Christ has come. He has been killed. I don't think Joseph understands it, but he's the Lord's anointed, and he needs a decent burial. And so he goes and asks for the body, and he shows steadfast love and loyalty, and it is recorded for us in God's word. I doubt he knew the significance of his actions. Which brings us finally to a compassionate love, a compassionate love. Joseph is not alone in his concern for the body of our Lord. He took the body, wrapped it in a shroud, laid it in a tomb, cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Now, there's a, there's a bookend even in this paragraph, and it's the mention of the Sabbath, it's the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. Remember the day, the Jewish day starts at sundown. So Friday night, when the sun sets, the Sabbath begins. So this is our time frame. The sun is near setting. It's the day of preparation. The Sabbath is about to begin, or it is beginning. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned. So first, who are these women? These are the women that have long been following Jesus. They had long been following Jesus. We're first introduced to them in chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 begins a second um, section of Jesus' ministry, and it begins with a sort of introduction to the programmatic nature of what Jesus is doing. Soon afterwards, he went on through the cities and the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. And the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So Luke identifies these women. That they'd been following him from Galilee. And again, Luke shows honor to these women, especially in stark contrast to the failure of the apostles and disciples. These women have long been following Jesus, and as far as we can tell, they've been faithful the whole way through. And their faithfulness 
is going to lead to them being the first witnesses of the resurrection. I mean, what an honor and a privilege that is. It's not the disciples who are the first witnesses of the resurrection, but these women. They had long been following Jesus. Note also point B, they followed Joseph and saw the tomb. Another cop-out potential explanation for people, this is ridiculous, is Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They just went to the wrong tomb. Thank you, Clint. It is laughable, indeed. You know, they just got all confused. Like, well, this is, this, is, this is an empty tomb. You must have raised. No. Luke, again, won't give us that out. You have to conclude Luke's lying or misinformed. They saw the tomb and how his body was laid. No, they knew where they were going. And so what do they do? And here again is one other point I'd like to highlight. Their faithfulness. These women are mourning they want to wrap Jesus' body with spices. It's another sign of honor. Remember the three, the three um, wise men come and they, they give gifts honoring this king. One of them is the frankincense and the myrrh for burial. And, and they're, they're faced with a dilemma. They want to honor Jesus. I imagine they're heartbroken. They're confused. They're sad. They're weeping. They want to do this good thing to Jesus. And yet the law of God stipulates they aren't to work on the Sabbath. And what's interesting is this mention of Sabbath is the very thing that's going to link us to chapter 24. That's why Luke, I think, puts this here. It's the transition. And precisely because they don't go on the Sabbath to anoint Jesus is why they get up early on the first morning of the week to go. So why, what brings the women to the tomb at sunrise on Easter Sunday? Their observance of God's law. Because they keep the Sabbath, because they obey what God has said, they know they can't do it then. They prepare the spices, they get ready, and because they obey God's law, they get this privilege. Why, why are they showing up? Verse 20, chapter 24, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. They'd prepped for it. So I, I just want to point this out. So, sometimes we can be so caught up in doing good and being merciful and being kind, that we can sometimes delude ourselves into thinking that God's law and his principles don't apply. As long as you mean well, as long as you have good intentions, as long as you're affirming and accepting and validating, that's what matters. As if there could ever be real tension between God's law and what is right and good. And you could think to yourself, the excuses these women could come up with, this is the Lord's Christ, his Messiah. If there's ever a time to set aside the Sabbath prohibition, it'd be now. Surely God would understand if we went and paid this honor to his son on the Sabbath. No. They returned to prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. They observe God's law, and in doing so, get a blessing. So if you're ever tempted to think that you're being pulled between doing what Scripture says and doing what's kind, go with what Scripture says. Trust me, you're being kind. And it will be for your blessing and your good. The whole catalyst for why they get there, why they're the first witnesses to the resurrection, why they're the first, in that sense, evangelists, announcing the good news that Jesus is not dead, is their observance of God's law. These are faithful women. And again, they're just being faithful with what's in front of them. They don't understand. They're confused. They're discouraged. They're weeping. But there's a body that needs tending. 
There's spices that need mixing. And they're faithful, and they're diligent, and they get up early in the morning, and they don't sleep. The disciples know where to be found, but these women are being faithful with what's in front of them. And they get this tremendous privilege and this tremendous honor. Point C, they prepare to honor God's son even as they honor his Sabbath. They prepare to honor God's son even as they honor his Sabbath. Luke is setting in motion the events that lead to chapter 24. Next week in chapter 24, we learn he doesn't stay dead. But for this, this Sunday morning, let's just pause here. The king is dead. Long live the king. He's died. It's certain. Disciples have scattered. Their weak faith has temporarily failed, but there is a courageous faith present in the person of Joseph of Arimathea. Our Lord's body is given a dignified and honoring burial. And these compassionate women prepare to honor the Lord even as they obey God. There is no tension there. And I just encourage you that when you don't understand what God is doing, and believe me, there are times you will not, when you don't have the foggiest idea why God would let something happen, what he's doing in it, it's okay to not understand. If you read the Psalms, there are plenty of places in the Psalms where the psalmist says, I, I don't have a sausage of an idea of what you're doing, Lord. That's okay. Be faithful of what's in front of you and trust him. These people had no idea the significance and the impact of their actions, and yet we're reading thousands of years later about their faithfulness. We're encouraged by it. Now turn, turn in your Bibles back to chapter 22 as we transition for our time in communion. I'm going to pray, and I just want to read a few verses from chapter 22, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's table. Lord God, give us the faith that even when we do not understand, we remain faithful, we remain hopeful, looking for your kingdom and your will. Give us the faith do what is in front of us, to be obedient. Guard our faith, strengthen our faith so that we do not, like the disciples, shrink back and scatter when difficult times come. Lord, give us a courageous faith like Joseph, a compassionate love like these women. Help us to trust you even in the darkness, even when we don't understand. In Jesus' name, amen.